Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting from Bloomberg's Government Next 2018 conference in Washington, D.C., and uh, no visit to the district would be complete without interviewing someone from the U.S. Congress. And we are lucky and fortunate to have Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, U.S. Representative, of course, from uh, California, Democrat from California, representing the 18th uh, Congressional uh, District. This is the, the heart of Silicon Valley. Congresswoman Eshoo, thank you very much for being with us. We appreciate My it. Um, be- before we get to uh, sort of the details of health care and cybersecurity and all this stuff, we've got to talk just a little bit of politics. Nancy Pelosi. Will Nancy Pelosi be the next majority leader? She won't be the majority leader. She'll be the speaker. Speaker of the House. I beg your pardon. Mm-hmm. Yes. She will be. She will be. Mm-hmm. Will it be a fight? Well, I think it already is. And uh, she's had opposition before. So uh, as she says, this is not a tea party. Uh, this is uh, politics. But she will prevail. Do you think that there's enough unity among the Democrats in the House to push forward an agenda that is ambitious and that can actually gain some traction at this point? I do. What do you think are going to be the main sort of tenets of that platform? Well, certainly health care was number one in congressional districts across the country. That's not just my definition, but as pollsters pull apart uh, the numbers and do the examination of why uh, uh, people voted the way they did, what their top issue was. And th- that's unusual because congressional districts all differ. Uh, no two are exactly the same. Uh, but this was the top issue. And it was uh, not surprising to me, but I think to many, that uh, they didn't vote the economy. They, they voted their own economy, and that is what health care costs them, uh, if its coverage is taken away from them, uh, what it does to families and to individuals. Uh, so that was the top issue. Do I think the energy and the commitment is there to address these issues? Certainly. Uh, uh, members uh, were reelected on these issues. Uh, and uh, as you see, the outcome, we have an extraordinary uh, new class of members, freshmen coming in, they, too, were elected on these issues, and so they have that commitment. They come in. They refresh the Congress. They're going to be really high value added to the Congress. Very exciting, especially the women. Can you uh, offer any details as to what kind of legislation, what specifically you would like to see come out of the committee, and what you can reasonably expect in terms of overall passage? Well, I think that, uh, number one, the, uh, the issue of uh, pre-existing conditions has to be guaranteed. Uh, so the, that was all embedded in the Affordable Care Act. Keep in mind that every member, whether they're Republican or Democrat, their health care coverage is the Affordable Care Act. 
So, you know, there's some hypocrisy that uh, crept into this, but nonetheless, it is, it's an essential uh, for coverage. So I, I think the, uh, the Affordable Care Act has been out there for some time. Uh, we know what's working, what isn't working. Affordability, you don't have access to anything unless you can afford it. And so affordability is a very important uh, to examine, to shore up uh, the guarantee of pre-existing conditions. Uh, and uh, so that needs to be addressed uh, in the, uh, at the Energy and Commerce Committee, first at the Health Subcommittee. On the other committee that I, subcommittee that I serve on, it's uh, telecommunications and, and, uh, and technology. You've been I very active in very, internet, internet freedom. Yes, very much so, net neutrality. Uh, I think the issues of, uh, of pri the issue of privacy uh, is, uh, is a big one. It needs to be addressed how platforms, social platforms are, are being used. You know, Do you support speak, regulation for hate. that? Well, I think that we need to uh, examine Section 230 because, uh, and when I say examine, I mean examine. I don't have a recipe for changing it right now, but I do believe that uh, uh, when you have uh, hate speech that uh, uh, violence follows. And um, I don't think there's anyone in the country that can defend that. The Congress needs to address it. Uh, just to be clear, Section 230, mm -hmm. this, is, uh, this was passed as part of the Communication Decency Act of 1996, mm -hmm. correct? That's the That's a long time ago. To. Yes, it mm -hmm. was. And a lot has changed. A lot has since changed. Since 1996. Oh, sure. We didn't have uh, uh, social media at that time. And uh, there isn't anything wrong with uh, social media per se. But if the platforms are being used for the darker side of nature, and out of that darker side comes violence, uh, that simply is not acceptable. Or that platforms be used to damage our democracy. That we can't, there isn't anyone that can defend that. So uh, these are areas, they're very serious areas, and I think that uh, uh, the committee should um, uh, not only be involved in it, but uh, in, the, in, in examination, uh, but to, uh, where it's necessary, um, produce sound legislation to address it. I just want to give you about 20 seconds, and I know it's short, but you have a personal experience with refugees. I do. With people coming and fleeing countries. Yes. I'm wondering if you could just share that with people and give us your thoughts on what is happening with immigration currently. Well, my mother and father, um, as children, uh, immigrated to the United States with their parents, my grandparents, uh, but they didn't come on a luxury liner. Uh, they fled persecution. There were Catholics, Christians uh, in the Middle East, very much a minority, uh, and so they fled for their lives. And so um, I'm a first-generation American. And so I see my family in those families that are fleeing persecution as well. Thank you very much mm -hmm. for being with us. Thank Congresswoman you. Anna Eshoo, U.S. Representative, Democrat, for representing California's 18th Congressional District. 
am so excited for our next guest, Chris Aylman, Chief Investment Officer of CalSTRS, California State Teachers Retirement System, uh, which is based in Sacramento, California, with more than $200 billion of assets uh, under management. Chris, the topic of the day is gun safety. But before we get into that, I just want to ask, how are you doing with the fires? And, uh, and, and have you seen a lot of the consequences in your area? You know, um, I get up every morning now, Lisa, and I actually check the AQI, the Air Quality Index. Uh, it is absolutely remarkable. I tweeted out a picture. Uh, my Twitter handle is CJA, the CIO. Uh, and my question was, uh, is this Beijing, China? But no, it's actually Sacramento, California. The yeah. AQR, AQI right now is over 220, which is unhealthy. Uh, the orange, I'm, I'm looking out the window, and the sun is a deep orange color. Uh, even though it's uh, you know, 8.45 in the morning here, people have, uh, are walking around with uh, masks on their face. Yeah. Um, and it's been like this for a week. So, so we know people uh, in Paradise, California, it is a beautiful Aww. town, and it is gone. It is wiped out. And I've got uh, staff who have relatives that are living with them, uh, a neighbor who has uh, their friends living with them. These people were able to get out uh, just barely in time with the clothes on their backs. So uh, it is very remarkable. I want to relate this to your uh, vantage point as the chief investment officer of this massive uh, retirement fund. How are you using your money in order to influence things in the way that you would like? Uh, in other words, with the fires, for example, a lot of people are blaming uh, certain kinds of uh, climate change issues for this. So how are you sort of, how is this coloring your investment thesis? Well, we actually factor in uh, what we call ESG, environmental, social, and governance issues, into everything we do. And part of the challenge with climate change, which is the environmental side, is predicting the rate of change and exactly what will happen. And that's an active management decision. So um, sadly, we have critics on both sides, some that say we're not doing enough, others that say we're doing too much. Uh, but you know, I think investors and institutional investors in particular recognize that something is changing. And they would, if you can get out ahead of it, then there's opportunities, but it also represents risks. So in our case, we try and look at our portfolio. We're looking at these kinds of weather pattern changes and how that will impact companies. Uh, you're seeing it already in the insurance industry that they're changing pricing on different things. Uh, you know, it is, it is a stark new reality. California's always had wildfires. Uh, and they have at times been bad. The reason they're particularly bad is the, the length of drought and the new change, which uh, Houston and other places you mentioned earlier this morning have seen, is the fact that when you get rain, you get it in abundance. And that leads to massive weed overgrowth in California, which when it dries out, turns into fire. So I think all of us are going to firsthand experience changes in our lives that impact uh, us in so many ways. It's, and we're challenging and engaging companies to see if they are paying attention and reacting. And I have to say, a lot of corporate executives are waking up. They're not falling for the political rhetoric. I was going to ask you, while you and Tim are down there in that slush, can you, can you clean that place up for us and, and get Washington figured out? I got my shovel ready, Chris. I'm going out right after the broadcast. But I got to ask you about changes and engaging investors and companies in a topic that has been the headline just almost every month 
because of something horrible, and this is gun safety and gun manufacturing and firearms. Tell us what you're doing and what you expect to happen. Thanks, Tim, for bringing me back to the, the point. And you hit it right on the head, which is institutional investors have been uh, just horrified by the uh, violence that's gone on in American society as a whole. And our board, um, after uh, Las Vegas last year and then Stoneman Majority High School, our board, you know, which is primarily comprised of teachers, our chair, Harry Keeley, put forth a motion that we make firearms engagement our number one effort um, and priority over everything else. And I got the opportunity to meet up with some people at Harvard, and we put together a task force, and I am thrilled that yesterday we launched our Responsible Civilian Firearms Principles. And, you know, in, your, in the city you're in, in Washington, it is so divided, uh, and the discussion is just uh, uh, almost bipolar, one extreme and the other. These principles are trying to go right down the middle. They're trying to be sensible and responsible. And you've got a broad spectrum of institutional investors, uh, states, defined benefit plans, 401k plans, almost $5 trillion in assets, saying as investors in this industry, we're calling on everybody to step up and enact change. And, Pim, I, I equated a lot to uh, seatbelts. You know, not a lot of people remember that the auto industry fought seatbelts, fearing that people would think cars were unsafe. Now we don't even give it a second thought. Wait, but Chris, that, hold on a second. Seatbelts are mandatory. So what? give us one specific example of something that this $5 trillion uh, cohort of investors would like to see done to make guns more safe. I can give you three examples. First, uh, Guns have serial numbers, but they have the ability to put a serial number on every part. The police would like to see that. It makes it easier for them to identify criminals and, and where the guns came from. And we think that's a responsible act for the industry because they want their guns used properly, not, Im not improperly. Another one would be for the retailers. Stop filling out the registration form. There are places where the clerks are filling out the registration forms or selling multiple guns in one sale, uh, box, you know, hundreds of them, um, instead of paying attention. And then another one, Lisa, that it is the responsibility of Washington, D.C., the uh, background check system is archaic. I mean, it's as bad as the voting system in Florida. It's just crazy. In this digital day and age that background checks are not done at a national basis and done in three days. Um, uh, those are simple changes. The technology already exists. Uh, and we think these would be material things that would make the industry better. So we're going to engage manufacturers, uh, finance, distribution, and retail, every, every part of the chain to, uh, to step up and, uh, and be more responsible and, and make these products uh, a bit safer, kind of like seatbelts. It's not going to stop the horrible incidents all the time that Pim mentioned, but uh, we're hoping that we can make some improvements. Well done. Thank you very much. Chris Ailman, Chief Investment Officer, CalSTRS. This is the California State Teachers Retirement System. Assets under management, uh, more than $220 billion. Joining us from Sacramento, California, speaking about a new initiative in the investment industry for responsible gun ownership. And our hearts go out to everybody in California dealing with the fires and, and all the best uh, trying to get them out and, and get safe. 
This is Bloomberg Markets with Pim Fox and Lisa Abramowitz on Bloomberg Radio. We are broadcasting from Bloomberg's Government Next 2018 conference in a snowy Washington, D.C. And our topic now is privacy, cybersecurity, and hacking threats. All electronic, all something that is in the purview of the government. Here to help us understand the issue more is Tom Gann. He is the chief public policy officer for McAfee. They are based, of course, in Santa Clara. Thank you very much, Tom, for being with us. We appreciate it. What is the biggest issue for you right now? There are a lot of issues, cybersecurity, we can go on, you know, but you can't do everything at once. What is the top thing on your plate? Well, the biggest thing for us at McAfee is really continuing to drive innovation, putting a lot of focus on security in the cloud, ensuring that our solutions work well between the endpoint and the cloud, because that's where we think all the action is. Uh, and uh, public policies that support uh, outcomes that work well for our customers is job number one. Do you think that representatives, elected representatives, fully understand the risks at play and the issues uh, as you discuss it with them? So that's a really interesting question. If I went back 10 years ago, I would say that most elected officials really didn't have any appreciation for cybersecurity. <clears throat> I remember being in a skiff years ago with uh, about 10 senators. And Just the, skiff is a very uh, sort of private area that is restricted. Right. That, yes. And uh, they were asking such good questions about the threat landscape, but it was clear that everything that we were telling them was really new news. Uh, today, in similar uh, type environments, when the threat landscape is discussed, no one disputes that the threats are real, that the threat actors are significant state actors, terrorist organizations, criminal organizations. Uh, I think what is new today is just getting a handle on the innovation that's occurring on the hacker side. Uh, innovation on the hacker side is oftentimes exceeding innovation on the private sector and governmental side. And that's why, in many ways, we still see an imbalance. Well, before we started the conversation, I asked you whether your iPhone was hacked. In other words, do you just assume that someone or something has access to it? And you had one response, and then you said, but you don't do transactions on your iPhone. Well, I guess I'm paranoid uh, being in the cybersecurity okay. industry. Uh, I focus on doing my transactions of the most important kind with one PC that only interacts with a small number of actors. Uh, that gives me a higher degree of confidence. I think it's a good practice. That said, I don't worry too much about my iPhone. I limit the kinds of transactions I do on it. Uh, and the security in iPhones are actually quite good. Which countries are uh, sort of spewing out the most sophisticated malware or uh, hacking advances that are exceeding the advances in the private and governmental sectors in the U.S.? Well, according to the published reports from the U.S. intelligence services, it's really uh, the big four, uh, China, Russia, uh, Iran, uh, and, uh, you know, then you certainly see uh, a range of criminal organizations that are becoming ever more capable. So just I'm wondering, do you have a sense of what these groups are trying to get at? What information do they want? 
There are different objectives for different actors. Uh, if you're a large nation state, you may be more interested in the theft of intellectual property. You may be more interested in getting insight on intelligence, military operations to support your long-term 10, 20, 30-year planning cycles. If you're a criminal organization, or maybe I had failed to mention North Korea, which is actually the last of the big four, uh, you may leverage cyber attacks to actually fund uh, your nation state activities. Uh, you know, if you're in the leadership of North Korea, uh, getting a couple billion dollars a year in hard currency to support a lifestyle, you know, becomes very important. Using cyber capabilities to help achieve those financial ends can be an important uh, objective of a state of that kind. Do the top level executives at a security company like McAfee, do they utilize a virtual private network to communicate confidential information? Well, the communications that we do are on our own network that's secured through our technology, but it is the same kind of solution set that we sell to large organizations. We're big believers in eating our own dog food, and uh, we have a high degree of confidence in our solutions that protect our own organizations. And because of that, we can confidently talk to customers about their solution needs. Which sector in the private sector in the United States do you think is most at risk of being hacked? Well, I think they're all at risk. Uh, that said, the top ones traditionally have been finance because folks like to go where the money is. Uh, and then also the government, that's where so many secrets reside. And then also innovators, where there's intellectual property of great value that can support economic development and uh, the achievement of national objectives. These are all critical areas that are at risk. Do you consider social media and the creation of false backers and false posting, is that in your bailiwick, is that considered a cyber crime? It's a version of cybercrime in the sense that it uses, it, excuse me, it utilizes technical means to achieve political and social objectives. And so the commingling of technical capabilities with uh, traditional uh, nation state disinformation, I think uh, is in many ways the cutting edge of the risk profile because it has the greatest potential to do damage to our democracy our confidence in democracy, and to me, uh, that is the greatest uh, treasure that we must protect. So there were some pretty strict data privacy regulations that took effect in Europe about six months ago. Do you expect anything similar to get implemented in the United States over the next few years? It's certainly possible. There's been enough pressure in the system building uh, for privacy legislation to get some traction. The large breaches, uh, Cambridge Analytica, for example. Uh, and in, the other thing to remember is U.S. companies, by and large, have been getting ready to comply with GDPR. So many of those investments have already taken place. The added lift to uh, federalize privacy rules such that they're more efficient but that their teeth are uh, sounder uh, certainly uh, is something that is achievable. Whether that occurs, we'll have to see. Thank you very much for being with us and sharing all this information. Tom Gann is the Chief Public Policy Officer at McAfee.
Today, uh, Acreage Holdings had its initial public offering on the Canadian Stock Exchange. Joining us now is the chief executive of that company, Kevin Murphy, uh, joining us from New York. Kevin, congratulations. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to file in Canada for this IPO and what the benefits are of being public for you? Filing in Canada is really the best option for us. And today, unfortunately, it's the only option for us. We're not yet welcome here in uh, the U.S. on either the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. So we've chosen to go north. And we feel that the Canadians today are leading the capital markets as it relates to cannabis. Can you tell us a little bit about the financial underpinnings of the industry in terms of how are you able, at least in the United States, to bank the cannabis industry? Well, given our scale and size, and currently today we're in 18 states, we do have and are afforded banking. It's predominantly on the local side, but we have banks in all 18 states in which we uh, operate. Smaller operators don't have the luxury. It is a differentiator for us, but it's an unfair differentiator. And we're looking um, really to 2019 for the States Act to pass, and we believe that would satisfy the banking as well. So we're optimistic for 2019 and couldn't be in better position for it. So let's talk a little bit about Acreage. It's a medical marijuana company. It has uh, backing from John Boehner, uh, formerly the uh, Speaker of the House, uh, who is a Republican and was formerly also opposed to marijuana legalization. What do you see going forward as uh, the potential, biggest potential opportunity for your business? I believe at this time it's really catching lightning in a bottle. We could not be in better position with the midterm elections coming and going. And it was as much about who was elected as to who was not elected. And for the first time, we're truly seeing the people of the United States being heard as it relates to cannabis reform. And so you see an Illinois governor and a Connecticut governor now being elected pro-cannabis, and more and more people are uh, really having access to what we believe to be a miracle plant. So um, we believe that the sea change is taking place, and it's evident with what we believe to be a good policy change. Now, the company, as you mentioned, having uh, gone uh, public, uh, this is formally Applied Inventions Management and High Street Capital Partners, correct? Those are the two involved. That is correct. We have done a reverse merger into um, said company. And frankly, to us, it was the path of least resistance. It saves us the most time. And today uh, is our first day of trading. Could not be more pleased and more proud of the effort that had gone in to making that a reality. Kevin, who's your biggest competitor? You know, it's a good question. We see everyone in this business, not necessarily as uh, competitors, but we see them all uh, as, frankly, uh, carrying the flag. We have found that in every state um, where we see more and more players, more competitive and, frankly, better players that are um, abiding by regulations and providing safe, predictable medicine, the usage in those states goes up. So the fact is that more is better in these states. We have a lot of folks that we admire, um, but we don't truly see them as competitors.
Now, you've raised over $300 million as part of the initial public offering. Where are you going to spend that money? Is it going to go to acquiring other companies? You've done that in the past, or are you going to build out organically? Tim, all of the above. Our goal is to continue being the leader in this country as it relates to size, scale, and really personnel. So we will use it for acquisition along with the stock uh, that will now be trading on the Canadian Stock Exchange. We'll look at to increase our footprint, hire additional experts, and ultimately build brands in the space that will resonate for years to come. Do you expect that, uh, are you banking on a full, broad legalization in the United States of medical marijuana? I know that state by state there was, uh, there were a few states that did, uh, that did legalize this in the midterm elections, but what do you expect on a broad, broad-based level? I think broad-based, today we have 33 medical states, 10 of which are recreational states, and I believe the States Act will be the first window of opportunity to... Uh, really receive a fair tax code in this country, have the ability for everyone, not just us, um, bank this business, and that will afford us the opportunity to grow state by state. I believe that it won't necessarily go federally legal for a little time to come, but having clarity with the States Act is going to be a great first step and really legitimizing the fastest-growing industry in the United States today. Just quickly, give you about 15 seconds here, Kevin. Prime, former Prime Minister of Canada, Brian Mulroney, has joined your board of directors. Is he behind the product as well as the idea? <laughs> well, he's certainly behind compassionate care for others. Not, uh, you know, one doesn't necessarily need to uh, use the, pro- the, the product to be an advocate for safe, predictable medicine for people that need it. So we couldn't be more p- pleased and proud to have the prime right. minister along with John Boehner and Bill Weld. Thanks very much. Bill Weld, of course, the former governor of Massachusetts. Thanks very much. Uh, Kevin Murphy, chief executive, Acreage Holdings. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.